Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Nancy Cool. I'm the curator of poetry for the Yale Collection of American Literature and one of the curators of the current exhibition, Psyche and Muse, Creative Entanglements with the Science of the Soul. Co-curated by Modern Books and Manuscripts curators Kevin Rep and Timothy Young and my, curator, my curatorial colleague in American Literature, Louise Bernard, the exhibition explores the extraordinary creative possibilities to be found in points of contact between the arts and the study of the mind. Today's event offers an opportunity to view one such interaction from a most uncommon vantage. Pardon me. It is my pleasure to welcome you to today's reading of correspondence from the Mabel Dodge Lujan papers, letters between Lujan, a writer, and her psychoanalyst, Dr. A. A. Brill. The letters were selected and edited by Patricia Everett, a psychologist in private practice in Amherst, Massachusetts, and the author of A History of Having a Great Many Times Not Continued to Be Friends, the correspondence between Mabel Dodge and Gertrude Stein. Dr. Everett worked in the Lujan Archive as a Beinecke Library A. Bartlett Giamatti Visiting Research Fellow in 2005. She is joined in today's reading by Paul Lippmann. Dr. Lippmann is a training and supervising analyst at the William Allenson White Institute. He's also the author of Nocturnes on Listening to Dreams. I will read the part of the narrator. Dr. Everett wrote the text I'll be reading, but please note that everything else you'll hear today is drawn directly from Lujan's and Brill's letters and from Mabel Dodge Lujan's published and unpublished writings about her experiences in and out of analysis with Dr. Brill. In the 19-teens, Mabel, Dodge, Mabel Dodge's Greenwich Village apartment was a meeting place for artists, writers, and political radicals. Herself a writer, social activist, hostess, and muse, Dodge sat on the editorial board of the masses, helped organize the 1913 Armory Show exhibition of modern art, and came to represent the sexually liberated, quote, new woman of the moment. In a weekly column for the Hearst Papers and at now famous salon-style gatherings she called Evenings, Dodge introduced readers and friends to then-surprising modern ideas, including Freudian psychoanalysis. In Movers and Shakers, the third volume of her ambitious four-part memoir, she describes her salon as a gathering of socialists, trade unionists, anarchists, suffragists, poets, lawyers, murderers, old friends, psychoanalysts, single taxers, birth controllists, newspaper men, artists, modern artists, club women, women's places in the home women, clergymen, and just plain men. A. Abril, perhaps the most influential early American psychoanalyst, made his first public address to a lay audience at Mabel's Salon. In addition to her early public advocacy for psychoanalysis, Lujan encouraged friends to pursue the talking cure throughout her life and sent many into treatment with leading analysts, including Brill and Carl Jung. She continued to write about the subject, leaving behind several unpublished manuscripts about her knowledge and experience of psychoanalysis at the time of her death in 1962. Please join me in welcoming Patricia Everett and Paul Littman. In January 1916, Mabel Dodge began psychoanalysis with Smith Eli Jellef. She wrote to him from Finney Farm in Croton-on-Hudson, New York, an estate in the country which she had leased. Dodge appealed to Jellif on January 4, 1916, clearly conversant in contemporary psychoanalytic jargon. Dear Dr. Jellif, I want very much to see you to discuss the possibility of your analyzing me. I am obliged to admit to having a jealousy complex, which has produced an anxiety neurosis with an increasingly compulsory action on my behavior. I'm living in the country now, but I will be in New York on Wednesday, and I will call up your house and try and get an appointment with you if you will have time to see me that day. Sincerely, Mabel Dodge. At this time, Jellif was a successful neurologist in New York who had been introduced to psychoanalysis five years earlier by A. A. Brill, a psychiatrist who had founded the New York Psychoanalytic Society in 1911. Brill met Freud in Vienna in 1908, an experience that had a profound effect on him, resulting in his becoming the first American psychoanalyst and the first American translator of Freud's work. Jellif's case notes from his first session with Dodge read as a verbatim recording of her evaluation of her own situation. An only child never in possession of my kingdom, root of my character, main trouble, jealousy, much in love at present with a man with compulsory sex possession. What happens with me is I have a hunch or intuition, real poison, outraged sense of possession, contact with life only through an individual, 
absorbed in or through some man. By the summer of 1916, Mabel Dodge had been involved with the artist Maurice Stern for a year, serving as his lover, model, muse, and generous benefactor. At this time, while living with Stern at Finney Farm, Mabel found herself in emotional disarray over their relationship. Dr. Jellif was away on vacation, so she contacted A. Abril, who agreed to a consultation. He saw me and told me he could not take me until later in the fall, but I told him I was badly in need of something. I was frightened, for I felt I could not endure my terrible burden of melancholy. He said, oh, yes, I could, and he turned me away. Mabel Dodge wrote to Jellif on July 1st, 1916, to explain her intended defection to Brill. Dear Dr. Jellif, I told Brill I had unwisely stopped my analysis some time ago, and I asked if I could continue it with him. He said that was impossible, that he couldn't help me by continuing another man's analysis, that he wouldn't take me as your patient the way a general practitioner might do, temporarily. I said that naturally I would probably have gone back to you had you been on the spot, that all I want is to get well, and that I wanted to come to him for the summer, feeling I must do something. He said he would take me as a patient if I begin an analysis with him and continue it, and I told him I would. So Mabel Dodge entered analysis with Brill, meeting with him regularly until she moved to Taos, New Mexico in December 1917. She maintained a lively correspondence with him for the next 27 years. And on several occasions, she consulted with him again, twice when he visited her in Taos, and at least once more formally when she returned to New York. The earliest letters in their correspondence date from the beginning of her analysis with him. Fall 1916. Dear Mrs. Dodge, your letters interested me very much. I'm very glad that you're keeping away from the crowd and are assuming a healthy attitude towards the world. I feel certain that the writing work will do you much good in more than one way. After reading your short story, I feel that you have the material, and I do not doubt that once your inhibitions will be gone, you'll be able to put your thoughts on paper with the same freedom as you can put them in speech. Everything depends on you. I'll do my share if you'll cooperate. I cannot see how I can get Maurice Stern to come to me for analysis. I repeatedly asked him to call on me, and he promised to do so. Should he keep his promise, I shall naturally, indirectly urge him to be analyzed. With best wishes, I am very sincerely, AAB. Fall 1916. Dear Mrs. Dodge, I was too busy to answer sooner, and I prefer to let you solve your problem without any interference from me. When I read the first letter that you sent of Mr. Maurice Stern, I felt like telling you that you should not give up any more than he wants to give. I changed slightly after reading his other letters, but I still think that you should be careful and not so generous. I shall discuss things more fully when I see you. The fact is that I feel that you're beginning to see things as they are and that you yourself are undergoing a change. I may be wrong. I'm always pleased to hear from you, and if you receive no answer, you must not stop writing. I answer when I'm able and when I should. Sincerely, A.A. Brill. Despite the unstable and often destructive nature of their relationship, Dodge and Stern were married in August 1917. August 27, 1917. Dear Mabel, your letter was interesting but not surprising. For some time I anticipated the good news, and I'll confess that a few weeks ago I was sure that you were married. Now please accept my most cordial wishes and congratulations. You didn't have to ask me to wish you luck. You realize I hope that both you and Maurice are very near my heart and that my objections were purely academic. I never said that I disapprove, but I counseled waiting a bit longer. I have no doubt that you'll be very happy as Maurice is a very fine fellow. I wish you to convey my best wishes to him and would like to see you soon. When I motored down to my appointment with Dr. Brill a few days after my wedding, I was very much on the defensive. I entered his office ready to fight, for I expected him to attack me. Instead, he looked at me sadly and without animosity. Couldn't you have waited? Waited for what? To finish your analysis. Then you would never have taken this step. Oh, I don't know. Well, we'll not argue about it. The thing is done. We'll continue our work. Have you any dreams to tell me? Right after their wedding, Stern left by himself for what he termed a, quote, rather novel honeymoon in Wyoming, as Mabel did not wish to accompany him. <laughs> when Stern returned to New York, Mabel found reasons to be jealous of his behavior and banished him yet again, this time to New Mexico. As she recalls in her memoirs, she explained, It's no use, Maurice. We can't make a go of it here. One of us must leave, and I want to stay here. 
I'm going to send you out to the Southwest. I've heard there are wonderful things to paint, Indians. Mabel joined Stern in Santa Fe in December 1917, but instantly disliked the city and chose Taos as a place to establish her new home. Soon after arriving there, Mabel met Antonio Luan, a Pueblo Indian whom she recognized immediately from a dream she'd had after Stern left for New Mexico. Luhan looked at me for the first time with a quick glance that penetrated to the depths with an instantaneous recognition, and I saw his was the face that had blotted out Maurice's in my dream, the same face, the same eyes, involuntarily intense with the living fire in their depths. Mabel invited Luhan for a visit. He sang for her, and she was captivated. A slow courtship followed as Tony, as he was called, introduced Mabel to the wonders of his country and the ways of the Native Americans. By the time Brill wrote the following letter, Mabel's relationship, with Lujan, um, Mabel's relationship with Lujan had driven Stern to leave New Mexico and return to New York in August 1918. Mabel's world was expanding as she began to embrace the spirituality and community of Indian life. Soon after Stern left, Tony Lujan and Mabel began their affair, described in the following passage from her autobiography. He bent a firm, gentle look down upon me and held out his hand, and I took it. I come in here to this teepee tonight, he said, when darkness here. That be right? Yes, Tony, I said, that will be right. And it was right. March 18, 1919. My dear Mabel, I've not written to you for a long time because, as you know, I'm very busy and I really had nothing to write to you. What induces me to write to you now are all kinds of rumors that I heard, which I'm inclined to lend credence to. You may not like my butting in, but my doing so is purely in a friendly spirit. From my own information, I feel that you're making a great mistake, and as you know me to talk straight from the shoulder, I shall talk frankly to you, realizing fully well that you're not going to take my advice. Now, don't you think that you ought to have some regard for the future and give up all that ridiculous mystical Indian business? Everybody thinks you're crazy, and if everything that I hear is really so, as an alienist, I would agree with them. I again wish to assure you that I'm telling you that in the friendliest spirit, and very anxious to hear from you if you'll take it as it is given. On the other hand, I'll feel that I've done my duty to an old friend. Very sincerely yours. March 15, 1923. My dear Mabel, I was very delighted to receive your letter. Again, I must withhold my approval of another marriage. I see no reason for it and will simply involve you in something else. You know I'm tremendously, I, I also strenuously objected to your Maurice Stern venture. However, I'm quite willing to see the other side of it. Mabel married Tony Lujan in Taos in April 1923. May 1, 1923. My dear Mabel, my most cordial congratulations to you and Tony. May your troubles now be over for all times. My objections to marriage were based in all probabilities on ignorance of all the facts involved, but I meant well. I'm sure, Mabel, that you understand me. Your marriage as such is not at all wrong, but I was not sure of the other matters, and I still feel that if you could come here and be a little bit overhauled, it would do good, <laughs> as ever. September 26, 1923. My dear Mabel, your letter came, and I was very pleased to hear of your state, and not at all surprised when you told me you were well-adjusted. I expected you to do so, and I have a great deal of confidence in your recuperative powers. I was extremely sorry that I could not visit you last spring when you invited me to Taos. This season is the hardest time for me when it's a question of going for any vacation, and also I felt that a quick psychoanalytic dose is not effective enough. As you are aware, my idea of the work is to give it time, and unless one gives it time, one cannot get very much out of it. Spring 1924. Dear Mabel, I received your letter. Now, Mabel, please remember that I never, quote, make hateful insinuations, close quote. I am known to talk straight from the shoulder, and surely I always did this when it concerned you. Now, let me review. I strenuously objected to Maurice and to Tony. In both cases, I felt that you were descending to a lower level in your flight from reality. In the case of Maurice, you'll probably admit that I was right. In the case of Tony, you surely will not. I wished you well when you married Maurice, and certainly also when you married Tony. I have a strong affection for you and wish you well whether you take my advice or not. I always liked you for your own sake, although you rarely ever listened to me. You ask, why not leave well enough alone? 
I certainly did and cannot help if my remarks stirred your complex in this rather forcible way, but as I did stir you to resentment, I feel sorry. It so happens that I do care what will happen to you later, and although I say nothing, I betray my feelings sometimes. Now drop this matter. You can always be assured of genuine friendship from me. Mabel's first existing letter to Brill concerns her paying him for a friend's psychoanalysis bill with the handwritten manuscript of D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers. In November 1921, Mabel had written to Lawrence, inviting him to Taos after reading his writings, believing that he could help her articulate her experience of Native American culture. In the fall of 1922, Lawrence and his wife Frida arrived in Taos as Mabel's guests. However, their relationship quickly became tumultuous and emotionally destructive, and Lawrence eventually left New Mexico in January 1926. April 24, 1925. Dear Dr. Brill, I'm giving you the manuscript of Sons and Lovers of D.H. Lawrence in return for your care of Everett Marcy, and I'm very glad to turn it to some creative use. It was given to me by Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence, not openly in exchange for the ranch in New Mexico, but sometime after I gave Mrs. Lawrence the ranch, she expressed the wish to give me the manuscript. Ever yours, Mabel Dodge Lujan. January 8, 1926. Dear Mabel, first in reference to Everett Marcy, he has done much better of late, and I feel that a lot can be done for him. I would therefore suggest that we continue for a few months longer. A former patient of mine, Mrs. Marion Monahan of Mesilla Park, New Mexico, wants to send me a mockingbird. She claims that she has a permit to send it out of the state, but I'm afraid that the bird will never get here alive, particularly as these birds cannot stand the cold, and he will in all probabilities not survive the trip in the cold cars. Now, if you'll be kind enough to ask Tony to do me the favor, if you can't and bring the bird to me, I'll be very thankful to you. You can send a wire to Mrs. Monahan, and she'll have the bird in Taos a day before you're to leave for New York. She'll also give you full instructions how to feed him over the journey and will send you the food. Knowing my love for birds, you'll not hesitate to take that trouble. March 16, 1927, my dear Mabel, the matter about Everett Marcy is as follows. When he wrote to me, I asked him to come. When he got here, I gave him regular appointments, but he failed to keep his appointments. He was very unsettled. Consequently, I got tired, and I told him to wait <clears throat> until he is settled enough to do regular work. I feel that it is absolutely useless for me to waste my time on him. I have neither the time nor the patience to give to people who are not seriously bent on working with me. So much for that. Very cordially yours. April 9th, 1928. My dear Mabel, I'm just in receipt of your few lines. I heard all kinds of rumors about your whereabouts, but only recently was I told that you're really alive and that you're still in Taos. There must have been something wrong in your conscious relationship to me. Let's hear about it. Mrs. Brill was delighted to hear that you had written to me. She asked a number of times about you, and I said that you were mad at me. Brill's next letter is in response to a lost letter from Mabel. His interest in the progress of her memoirs is rooted in his instrumental role in her embarking on the writing project in 1924. From an early point in her analysis with him, Brill had forcefully encouraged Mabel to write. May 3, 1928. Dear Mabel, the only thing wrong about your letter that I see is your closing sentence. You say, quote, have a heart and sympathize with my weaknesses, which are at the same time my strength, quote. Of course you know that I've always sympathized with you and consider you a unique woman, unique in more than one way. It doesn't matter that you're doing all sorts of crazy things. This is not meant to be scientific. I hope that you're working hard on your memoirs affectionately. September 14, 1930. Dear Brill, I wrote a pretty good book about D.H. Lawrence called Lorenzo and Taos, but Frida Lawrence is such a fool she won't let me publish his letters in the book. Love. September 19, 1930. Dear Mabel, it's too bad that all the interesting things that you're writing cannot be published. I hope that some way will be found whereby they can come to light before you're dead, because at that time I shall be dead too, and look what I'll miss. Do you expect to come to New York? Mabel's account of her relationship with D.H. Lawrence, Lorenzo and Taos, was eventually published in 1932. She sent a copy to Brill. February 27, 1932. My dear Mabel, I consider Lorenzo 
a very interesting and human document, and I congratulate you on having produced not only a good contribution to human relations, but an excellent literary production. I was naturally interested in the references to me, some of which I probably analyzed differently than you would, but none of them in any way offended me. They all amused me. I'll write again and have it out with you on a few points. In Lorenzo and Tas, Mabel described her experiences with psychoanalysis. I had been in a psychic jam once or twice and had been eased out by Dr. Jellif and again by Dr. Brill. But heavens, with these analysts, one has to be so careful. One has to weigh everything, lest one give them more than they can swallow, and they turn and rend one for it. Unless one fits oneself into their systems and formulas so they can pigeonhole one into a type or a case, they grow puzzled or angry or sad. Psychoanalysts do not seem to admit exceptional people. One has, then, to be continually assuaging them and measuring down to them out of sheer kind-heartedness. When I think of the time, I have spent assuaging analysts at $20 an hour. A year later, Mabel sent Brill the first volume of her memoirs, Background. March 29, 1933. My dear Mabel, just finished the background of your intimate memories, and I hope that the others will be following soon. Here you are at your best. I'm sure, however, that you're only giving the world glimpses of yourself. Nevertheless, I feel that it would be wrong for you to follow your original scheme and wait until you're dead and buried before your other memories are open to the world. You could surely give them out with a little concealment and a little glossing, which certainly would be much better than nothing. After all, what do we care what happens after we die? So please, Mabel, hurry up and strike the iron while it's still blazing. Your volume is interesting and fascinating and one of the best books of mental and emotional evolution that has come to my attention. Two years later, the next volume of Mabel's memoirs was published. October 22, 1935. Dear Brill, when this last book, European Experiences, came out, I sent you a copy. Did you get it? Only a few people seem to know what I'm trying to do in these books. Critics use such words as unintentional and unconscious. This gripes me. They don't seem to see that one can become objective about one's subjective past. Anyway, I bet you get me, don't you? Just now I'm in one of those fearful periods where I can't work, can't respond, seem empty and unknowing. These always pass, but it has gone on too long this time. I haven't done any real writing for months and I'm lonesome for that full flowing feeling. I used to get started by you when I was near enough, but now it's too far away. I don't have those awful depressions I used to have before analysis, only colorless, gray, oldish states of being. I was rather intrigued by your Dr. Sandor Rado, who was here for lunch with his wife, along with both Tony and Maurice. Rado acted. I mean, I couldn't fathom the little man, so I supposed he was clowning in some way. Then Maurice acted up and irritated me. So the lunch party wasn't very successful. It dragged, and so I made up a reason to leave and dashed out. Maurice was by then looking dark and mad and hurt. Ah, me. These things are so hard to manage well. Tell me, is Dr. Rado a wonderful analyst or just a little boy? He acted so simple and had the oddest ideas. He said our buildings of adobe had no edges. All were round because of fear of pain. Why don't you come out here and give me a whiff of analysis to start me off? Love, Mabel. October 26, 1935. Dear Mabel, first... I never got your book. Consequently, I didn't read it because somehow I felt that if you had written a book, you should send me a copy. I felt very badly that I'm not near you now to pull you out of this gray period. I imagine I know exactly how to do it when I'm with you. Your exhibitionism has probably been more or less shocked because of some of the critics and your libido, as it were, withdraws from the conflict. But Mabel, you can put it all over them. You always look them straight in the face and tell them to go to hell, and you should continue to do so. I'm sure that sooner or later you'll have gathered sufficient libido to overcome such little pricks of your narcissism. After all, you've done remarkably well, <coughs> and you deserve a small period of libidinal stagnation. Don't be surprised, however, if someday I'm out there in Taos. Concerning Monsieur Rado, Mabel, you are great. Your characterization of him is perfect. The reason that I didn't answer the letter that you sent after you met him was because you said that he didn't claim to be a real Freudian. Had I answered your letter, I would have said that he was a G.D. liar to give you that impression and that he did that for some political reason. I invited him to come here because I never thought that he was anything but a Freudian. From your description of him, I note that he didn't fool you much. 
Your description of the luncheon is wonderful. I just roared with laughter when I read it. I could visualize Maurice with his wounded narcissism in the presence of Madame Rado, with whom he's supposed to have had, have or have had an affair. Mabel, this is not for publication. I'm giving you public gossip. There are a great many things I should like to tell you, but I shall have to wait until we meet. I'm always delighted to receive letters from you. They're so refreshing that I can always imagine that you're talking to me. You see, I love you just as much as I ever did, and I'm convinced that your other friends feel the same as ever, Brill. November 4th, 1935. Dear old Brill, your nice letter here. Thank you. <coughs> I feel better, but still diminished. I think you are right. I feel my work is good and has its importance, so the critics hurt my feelings. But if I can get to work, I will be all right. I'm trying to do a novel on homosexuality. That ought to hold them. August 3rd, 1936. Dearest Brill, the proofs of movers and shakers come this week, and a copy will go to you. I'm so bored with it, bored at myself at that period, which I tried to pin down on the pages like an entomological specimen. Also bored at all the work I had to do editing most of the meanness and malice and wit out of it so as not to hurt people's feelings too much. Poor Maurice, I don't know what he's going to do. Yet, of course, in those days, I was very negative and most of my reactions were critical. I'm not at all like her anymore. I'm pretty well regulated now and know fairly well how to keep my balance. So well indeed that I shall not open and read any of my press clippings on this book. Carl Van Vechten and others don't speak to me at all since my last book, Love. September 15, 1936. Dear Mabel, I'm sure I will read your new production with a great deal of interest. I do not blame you for being bored with it. One is always more or less bored with anything that one has to, to toil over, particularly if it concerns feelings and views which one can no longer sponsor. I'm naturally very interested in your summation of your erstwhile reactions. I remember distinctly some of the situations, and I frankly agree with you about your attitude and manner of that time. Do not forget, Mabel, everybody dislikes seeing himself in an obscured, narcissistic light, and that would particularly hold for such individuals as Maurice. You've undertaken something which the world wants, but which is more or less dangerous, but I'm very glad you're doing it. In the end, it's bound to reflect credit on you. I would love to have a chance to spend a few weeks in Taos and just talk to you with love. December 21, 1936. Dear Mabel, now that I've read Movers and Shakers, I can tell you that I enjoyed it very much. It was fascinating to me to relive and revisit a number of very familiar and interesting scenes. I've recommended it to a number of people, and those who have read it speak very well of it. Some of them were a bit shocked, which is, of course, to be expected, and the only persons who objected were a few who were friendly to Maurice. I naturally defended you, and I shall continue to do so. As a matter of fact, I know that you could have said much more than you did affectionately. In the summer of 1937, A.A. A. Brill visited Mabel in Taos. At this time, Mabel had begun work on a manuscript entitled On Human Relations, A Personal Interpretation, a description of the psychoanalytic method that she had dedicated to him, quote, for A.A. A. Brill, for whom I am, for whom, from whom I gathered whatever I know about psychoanalysis, but not holding him responsible for my interpretations. She may have consulted with Brill about the manuscript during his visit, as she requests in her next letter that his secretary make an addition to it. July 3rd, 1937. Dear Dr. Brill, I have a line I want Miss Buck to insert in the psychoanalysis manuscript, in the part about jealousy being from a feeling of ego displacement, and that all suffering is ego suffering. I want added, quote, and the only cure for ego suffering comes from the superego, hmm. end quote. I feel I owe you and Rose so much, an everlasting obligation. Never mind, if I only sell my manuscript, I'm going to pay everyone what I owe. Love, Mabel. August 28, 1937. Dearest Brill, two weeks ago someone poisoned my favorite spaniel, and the week before my white riding horse was poisoned, singled out among all the other horses. I feel it is dangerous. September 2, 1937. My dear Mabel, I read your letters with a great deal of interest. You do not imagine for a moment that I had no cause for talking to you about psychic suicide when I was visiting you in Taos. Your fight with your old friend John Collier, the completion of your works, all these represented a consummation of a task which was almost titanic. I might say that your works, including the one that's coming out, the final volume of your memoirs, represented your whole life's work, and like the sensitive creature you are, you were ready to give up. 
Since I was there, you're different, and you're going to continue. The disturbance that you still show, which makes me feel a bit apprehensive, is the feeling of the hostilities that surround you. Please do not connect the poisoning of your spaniel and your white riding horse with John Collier and the hostile Indians. Above all, do not surround yourself by an anal sadistic halo of unconsciously attracting punishment. I think that this is still an emanation of the death instinct or your erstwhile effort at psychic suicide. With my love to you all, I am Brill. September 10th, 1937. How about me? Am I expected for work with you late October? Love, Mabel. September 15, 1937. Dear Mabel, I certainly think it would do you a lot of good to come here, and I expect you to live with us. I told Mrs. Brill about it, and she was very pleased. We thought that you might bring Tony with you. Do not be excited because I use the word anal sadistic. You're like so many other people who should know better. That term only describes certain qualities which we all have, which at times are exaggerated. October 11, 1937. Dear Mabel, remember the whole idea about analysis was yours. It was not my suggestion. The only thing that worries me is that you should have so much fear of it. As a matter of fact, I do not think that you need analysis. My feeling is that whatever you wish to do, you could work out yourself. When I talked to you about psychic suicide, it was because I was impelled to do so by your general behavior, and I feel that it's done you a lot of good. If you wish to come to New York, I'll do everything to make it pleasant for you. I love you just as much as I did before. Affectionately, Brill. November 7th, 1937. Dear Brill, it looks now as if I had better wait until after Christmas for my visit to you. I'm not writing and feel I need a jog from you to get me going, but I feel fine, though of course restless. Love, Mabel. In November 1937, the New Mexico Quarterly reported, quote, we understand that Mabel Dodge Lujan has gone to New York to be re-psychoanalyzed. She did not, however, leave Taos until January. December 10, 1937. Dear Mabel, I'm glad that you're coming. I was quite sure that you needed New York treatment, and I'm sure that once you get here, we'll get you out of all your difficulties. Mabel Dodge Lujan arrived in New York in January 1938, staying for a period of time with Brill and resuming her treatment with him. During this visit, Mabel likely completed writing her essay, Psychoanalysis with Dr. Brill, a narrative account of two sessions of her therapy from this period. It begins with her announcement. I want to work on a problem of work. I don't want to do autobiography anymore. I just want to write. When I write, I am alive. When I don't, I am nothing. Here I am back in New York with you, and I don't know what to do with myself most of the time. I feel bored, frightened. I have no self. Mabel goes on to describe the process of psychoanalysis, Brill's approach to his work, and her progress during this period. How describe the peculiar and infinitely variable course of a psychoanalytic ordeal? For ordeal it is, and must be, since all change is painful, and all organic growth means change. Does anyone suppose there is no pain involved when a tree drives its roots deeper and expands its girth? Well, a psychoanalytic experience is as mysterious, as solemn, as organic as such a growth. Brill has an infinite faith in life, in its richness, its variety. He has sat for many years before many people, and he has often seen the amazing miracle take place before him, the miracle of a person's discovery that all the answers are within himself, unsuspected for long, yet forever ready. And what this science called psychoanalysis consists of, this method of knowing oneself, this curious dream system, and its attendant associative process, how is it possible to tell except by going through it? After some time, the inhibited feeling for life began to rise again. Color came back into life as the life in me moved once more. Brill must have known what he was doing and what he refrained from saying, but he only seemed to watch and to repeat over and over what did you dream, and what does that suggest to you? April 14, 1938. Dear Mabel, I cannot quite understand why you gave me another copy of this psychoanalysis with Dr. Brill. The copy that you gave me before is marked number four. It's exactly the same as number three that you left yesterday. Now, please let me repeat what I said. The title is very bad. A psychoanalyst does not act that way and does not go for luncheon with his patients. It is misleading in every way, and not only is it wrong, but I'm sure I shall be criticized by the psychoanalysts and perhaps by the Academy of Medicine. Some might think that I was being advertised, and naturally I would have to disavow this whole thing if it should come to a showdown. 
I therefore suggest that you either change it or call it something else. In changing it, you could say that you were analyzed by me before, and many years later on a visit you called on me, and at some time we spoke about these matters, but it is not psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, you know, takes a long time and is conducted in an entirely different way than we are doing now. I'm sure you could make a good paper out of it if you would form it a little differently, but I cannot approve of its present form. We'll tell you about it more when I see you on Friday. Despite his assertion to the contrary, Brill did apparently have lunch with Mabel on several occasions, as she reports in the final passage of Psychoanalysis with Dr. Brill. After such an hour as is sometimes very hard to face through, Dr. Brill will get up and say, well, let's go home and have some lunch. And we will go around the corner to the house, and in the dining room there will be a good meal ready, and friends smiling, and the birds there in their cages against the wall. Mabel remained in New York until May, and then returned to New Mexico. In her next letter, she refers to Brill's planned visit to Taos that summer. May 8, 1938. Dearest Dr. Brill, I miss you like anything, just having you there at 88 Central Park West. We are looking forward so much to your visit. Love to you and Rose, Mabel. Brill and his wife Rose visited Mabel and Taos in the summer of 1938. In her account of the poet Robinson Jeffers and his wife Una's stay in Taos that summer, Mabel begins her story with Brill leading a lively discussion. Dr. Brill sat in the center of a little group of admirers in my living room. He was talking to us about fulfillment. Fulfillment for a man, he said, lies in the sexual act, but not so for a woman. What fulfills a woman then, Una asked. Maternity, replied Bill succinctly. Una looked silently, her disagreement. Certainly, he laughed. Man is is constituted for sowing his seed, woman for receiving it, cherishing, and nourishing it. Life intends this to be so, and it is so. Brill was the main event at a party in Taos hosted by Mabel. Everybody in the village had heard of Dr. Brill and were crazy to look upon him. Of course, I had the Indian boys there to dance, and Dr. Brill was thrilled with their dark glow and their delight in motion. One of my guests asked Brill to speak about the dancing, so he stood in the center of the gathering, beaming around at all of them, and began. Now, I did not see anything erotic in this Indian dancing. My God, I thought but he went on in the most characteristic manner to say that in the past it was the fashion to affirm, I think, therefore I am, but that he preferred to say, I move, therefore I am, for motion is life and dancing is still more life. June 24, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, we all missed you very much as soon as you left, especially Una Jeffers bemoaned your loss, for she had a great transference to you. Love to you all. June 28, 1938. My dear Mabel, I too was very sorry to leave as quickly as I did, but c'est la vie. My feeling for the Jeffers is about the same as their feeling for me. I can assure you that I enjoyed my short visit with you affectionately. July 1, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, I'm now working on a novel called Water of Life that has my friend Myron Brinnig and, and me in it. Only the end is much sublimated and an improvement upon real life. The beginning is all craving for power, irresponsible life, and sexual expression, and the end is fulfillment for a woman through maternity and death for the man after a volcanic eruption, when luckily he had completed coitus with the woman on top of the mountain. How's that for using your teaching? Hey-ho! Love from all of us. July 20th, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, after the Jeffers left a a week ago, Thornton Wilder came to visit to work on his play Merchant of Yonkers but a peculiar feverishness animated him. I gave him my psychoanalysis article to read. He took it to his room for perusal. He knows all about psychoanalysis, knows Freud, went to see him, and had several long talks. The next day, he went to a dance in the Pueblo without a coat along and caught a chill. Then he had a sore throat he would not admit or care for. I found the psychoanalysis article left by him on my desk, but he never mentioned it to me. I do not know what he thought of it or what his reactions were. His voice disappeared, and from being over-conversational and brilliant, he became silent. I insisted on his seeing a doctor who said nothing seemed to be the matter. Still, his voice was gone. Do you suppose it's my fault? July 27, 1938. My dear Mabel, don't you think it's high time to stop feeling guilty and give up your foolish superstitions? I cannot see why you should attribute Thornton Wilder's loss of voice to any fault of your own. It's quite possible that he had a cold. He is a pronounced neurotic, people say, so he could have exaggerated his cold to express some complex 
writers are narcissistic and the fact that he said nothing about the manuscript may mean he didn't read it or he read it and liked it or disliked it and forgot about it that it might have caused his upset is not likely you're so ready to spank yourself because you have a guilty conscience love August 28, 1938 Dear Dr. Brill it gives me great satisfaction to send you this check out of money I earned thanks for your generosity in vastly undercharging me I think I must still owe you a lot I have my old double depression coming down on me again because I am bored and have no humans to exchange libido with here. When my visiting friends are gone, at first I'm glad to be alone, but soon I find it does not agree with me. August 31, 1938. My dear Mabel, thanks very much for the check. As I told you before, there was no hurry about your paying me, and I do not know whether you owe me as much as you sent. It's only natural that you should now have a letdown after all the excitement that you've had. If I were you, I would pull myself together and get to work. You take things too seriously. You cannot control the world, but you would still like to. Parenthetically, omnipotence of thoughts. September 16, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, my novel, Water of Life, is finished. Do you care to read it? I think it is an imposition that you should have to read everything your patients write, I must say. On the other hand, you can see in their work how your efforts have failed or succeeded with them. I confess I would like your opinion on it. September 27, 1938. Dear Mabel, as to your novel, I should be very glad to read it, but unless you can give me plenty of time, I would not ask you to send it to me. I hope that by this time you've shaken off your blockings and are free again, affectionately. September 30, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, no. On the contrary, my blockings are worse than ever. As I cannot work all the time, because when I work, I work hard and pour out a lot and have to fill up again. I'm idle and vacant and hollow as a drum, at the same time throbbing and vibrating with a strong melancholy libido that turns here and there seeking a way out and finds none. If I miss one day of exhausting horseback riding, the next day I am frantic. October 3, 1938. Dear Mabel, the best thing to do when you're in a mood like this is to give into it and say to yourself that it'll pass. The more gracefully you take it, the sooner, and then your libido will come to the surface. Remember, the human organism is no different than any other dynamic structure. Whatever goes up must come down, and it does not stay down either. You have the capacity to live so fast and do so much while you live that there must come some slump. You need no medicines, but of course you always take them, so keep it up. October 4th, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, dreamt last night a falling dream. Very snowy country and a tank was crawling up a hill on the edge of a low drop. I was below and in this vehicle our Boston Terrier bitch was imprisoned. As it climbed higher and she saw me left below, she got more and more frantic. Then to my horror, she found a crack in a window and climbed through and hurled herself out and I saw her falling through the air from the great height. I saw her strike the snow and looked to see if it had killed her, but she was not there. The machine went on, and I too left that place. Only some time after, it occurred to me she had penetrated the snow, and maybe was suffocating but alive, and that I had not tried to get her out when I was there. Horrified me. These dreams are very agonizing and seem to be trying to tell me something I should do, but I don't know what. I forget what falling means in a dream, specifically. Writing you about it seems to encourage me. I hope it doesn't put too much on you. October 5th, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, the reason of this letter is to ask your opinion on this. Dr. Pond has given me some benzedrine sulfate tablets to tide me over this depression and boredom. One tablet removes all dark thoughts, tension, melancholy, and pessimism. I wanted to ask you if you think they are legitimate to use. They give me immense relief from depression. However, should one let nature take its course and go on and live through this familiar rhythm? Does one interfere with the creative mechanisms by not enduring these rest periods? October 19, 1938. Dear Mabel, as to the tablets, I've known about them for at least a few years, and the opinions about their efficacy are still divided. If it does you some good, I'm very pleased. But remember, you could have thrown off all these things without it, so do not continue to lean on it. I hope that by this time you've cleaned up all the cobwebs and that you're again actively back at work. October 20th, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, I decided to take your advice and have my depression as gracefully as possible. 
I made up my mind to pay practically no attention to the vague, unformulated feelings of distaste for life. Ever, Mabel. October 23, 1938. Dear Dr. Brill, I am not taking the benzedrine sulfate tablets. No, I am doing no head work. I have no ideas, responses, zests, or excitements. All I do, I do by will and without pleasure, but I do it. I am faintly considering an article in non-technical terms about these ups and downs, entitled The Golden Mean, from which I will quote from Lao Tzu and also from Freud on the pleasure principle. I am groping for an explanation of these recurrent states. There must be an understanding one could reach somewhat within the terms of Lao Tzu and other philosophers who designate a middle way to go, avoiding extreme states. I vaguely feel there is a way of life for manic depressives to discover that could save them from these slumps. December 7, 1938. Dear Mabel, what the average person would just consider a passing mood, your fragment of autoeroticism strives to get negative gratification by making a depression out of it. Do not forget, we all have ups and downs, and he goes through life most smoothly who pays no attention to such little bumps. Love. January 31st, 1939. Dear Dr. Brill, I suppose you will be glad to hear I am feeling fine again now. Did you ever read my novel or the other pieces I sent you? I would like to hear. Love. May 8th, 1939. Dear Mabel, your long silence was appalling, and when you finally broke the silence by telling Mrs. Brill that I never read anything that you sent me, I can understand why you were mad at me. The fact of the matter is that when you get an attack of Lagoria and keep on turning out manuscripts of enormous dimensions, you cannot expect a man who has to earn his livelihood to drive away all his patients and read the manuscripts. Beside, I have so much confidence in you that I know Brill or no Brill, you'll do what you like anyhow. Affectionately yours, Brill. Mabel Lujan returned to New York at the end of December 1939, staying until April 1940. In the spirit of Mabel's famous gatherings at 23 Fifth Avenue, held between 1913 and 1917, she hosted salons at her new home at 1 Fifth Avenue. The schedule for her evenings included Thornton Wilder on January 12, 1940, who was to discuss eight pages of James Joyce's new novel, Finnegan's Wake. On April 19th, A.A. Brill was invited to speak about psychoanalysis, as Mabel explained in a newspaper article. I'm having Dr. Brill because it was in my home that he first talked about psychoanalysis to a lay group. Some left in great disgust. Those were days when new subjects were thrilling to some and horrifying to others. Birth control and psychoanalysis were sensational. January 16, 1940. Dear Mabel, now don't forget, I do not want to come there and argue with a lot of nuts. I have, I have enough of that. Let me remind you that if you'll have a big crowd there, I'll not talk. And if I talk, there'll be no arguments about treatments and different schools and all that. If you want different schools, have them appear in a row. I've had enough of that, so please remember and don't get angry if I change my mind about talking. I think you made a mistake in asking me to talk, and I believe you can still change it. Months later, after Mabel had returned to Taos, Brill wrote, wrote to her in response to a letter from her now lost. July 25th, 1940. Dear Mabel, your arguments with your son about the future state of society are symbolic of your whole life, your own resistance to your mother, etc. The blind force of Hitler appeals to you as a personification of your own blind rage since early childhood. You wish to destroy everything and avenge your father. That's why an extra tribal attachment, you and Tony worked well while the sexual element participated and continues to do so without it. Well, I'm here in New York. Now that Freud is dead, I have to finish up many things which I'm doing and have accomplished much already. Well, stop brooding over some of your putative transgressions. You have no real cause to complain. You have done much more than the average mortal and can do a lot more. At any rate, I love you just as much as ever. Affectionately, A.A. A. Brill. Mabel turned 65 on February 26, 1944, and celebrated with a party in Santa Fe. She had invited A.A. and Rose Brill, but they were unable to attend. March 3, 1944. Dear Dr. Brill, well, that birthday party was quite a thing. What was amusing was that my neuritis in my bladder and the accompanying frequency ceased an hour before the party. 
Since then it has returned, but with less pain. Love to you both. March 6, 1944. Dear Mabel, now that your birthday party is over, I think your other symptoms should disappear. As you can see, when you were emotionally occupied, the symptom didn't bother you. A symptom of this kind is a sign of an inordinate ambition, and I'm sure that it's a representation of how you still feel about life, affectionately. March 10th, 1944. Dear Dr. Brill, well, here we are at home after a great time in Santa Fe. I had lots of fun, and everybody loved me and gave me parties. Now, really, sometime you and Rose must come out to Santa Fe and stay in that nice hotel in lovely rooms with us next door to you, and we'll have a lot of fun. Love to you both. Mabel. March 14, 1944. Dear Mabel, what you say about Santa Fe appeals very much to Rose and me. I'm sure that you'll be very busy in Taos and you'll forget all about your morbid anatomy. May 2, 1944. Dear Mabel, this is an answer to your letters. The most important reaction is that you are active and writing, which pleases me very much. We'll write to you again soon. As ever, Brill. This is the last existing letter from A.A. Brill to Mabel Dodge Luan, and no further letters exist from Luhan to him. Brill died on March 2, 1948, almost four years since this last letter. However, Mabel and Tony Luhan had visited him in New York before he died, as indicated in a letter to Mabel from Brill's son, Edmund, written after Brill's death. Quote, we were delighted to see you and Tony in New York. Sorry, though, that my father at the time already felt that he was not well, even though the doctors said all was perfect. He had always believed that one knows consciously or unconsciously when anything is wrong. Brill's unconscious was likely operating in his choice of topic to present to the Vidonian Club in December 1946, 16 months before he died. His paper was entitled Thoughts on Life and Death and included a passage from William Cullen Bryant's poem Thanatopsis, a work that Brill considered to be, quote, the most beautiful and most consoling description of the end in view. Earth that nourished thee shall claim thy growth to be resolved to earth again, and lost each human trace surrendering up thine individual being, shalt thou go to mix forever with the elements to be a brother to the insensible rock. Approach thy grave like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams. Mabel died in Taos in 1962, still married to Tony Luan, her husband of 39 years. Mm -hmm.